0: Welcome to the Blaze Podcast put together by Blaze Incorporated. My name is Onyema Udeze. Afrocentric architecture, the way forward. Back in the mid-1800s, two African kings were at war, King Kosoko and King Akitoye, who happened to be nephew and uncle. The war set the contest for a British invasion. Akute was desperate to regain power after 10 years of being forced out of power by his nephew, King Kosoko. He had to team up with the British to invade his kingdom. And in defense of the kingdom, King Kosoko lined up 60 cannons across the shoreline plus 100 dugout canoes with well-armed men and 5,000 musketeers placed in strategic places in the bushes. On the other side was the 20 ship Armada of the British Royal Navy. On December 24, 1851, the first attack came in. By December 27, the final cannon shot was fired, bringing down the King's Palace. Nearly 90% of the population of 22,000 either fled or got killed. King Kosuko and some of his few surviving warriors. We are driven to exile, leaving the place derelict and deserted, thus, clearing the ground for King Akitoe. After the incidents, the British invaders took the king's throne to form the Lagos colony, thus, bringing about the beginning of an indirect rule. After 10 years of virtual rule, the British Empire decided to take possession of Lagos in 1861 to create the crown colony. Of Lagos, the then King Dosunmu was coerced to sign a treaty to cede the position of the colony to the British Empire. Eventually, this led to the creation of the Colony of Nigeria through a series of attacks on numerous kingdoms across the Southern and Northern Protectorates, and this includes the Benin Expedition in 1897 attack on Aroshiku in 1902, attack on Kano and in 1903, Onesha expedition in 1905 and so many others. All this culminated in the amalgamation of the two protectorates in 1914. After the amalgamation there were a lot of struggles and disputes between the colonial masters and the original dwellers such as the Abama kept Men's Riot in 1929 which led to the shooting and the death of over 54 women. The press was took for form with the formation of the Nigerian Press Association in 1929. The worker strike of 1945 was a 52-day nationwide agitation against the British administration. The Aber Valley mine shooting of 1949 led to the death of over 27 miners two world wars took place within this period which increased the pressure on the british empire to seek even more taxes rough foods and labor across their colonies all these and many more fights by so many uncounted nigerians with so many lost lives eventually brought about nigeria's independence in 1960 some of the remarkable civil rights activists then include the likes of Mrs. Alemutu Peleura, Mrs. Fumilayo Anuklapokuti, Herbert Macaulay, and so many others. This story is adapted from The Journey of an African Colony by Olasupo Shashuri, a seven-part video documentary on Netflix. Colonization is an experience shared by almost every African country. And this is not a story to bring back old memories, as we know that the so-called black heroes that rose to power after independence committed and are still committing even more atrocious acts than the colonial masters. However, colonization is one of the most recent stories that influenced what Africa is today. Just before the dawn of colonization was the era of slave trade which lasted between the 16th and 19th centuries. After the abolition of the slave trade in the late 19th century, a lot of the freed slaves returned to Africa, bringing with them things the land from foreign countries. But before the slave trade, there had always been intercontinental trade in Africa, carried out by the great traders and explorers. Nonetheless, the external influences were not always driven by trade, there were also religious ambitions. The majority of the northern African countries witnessed islamization as far back as the 6th to 17th centuries. Between the 18th and early 20th centuries, there were a lot of Christian missionary activities in sub-Saharan Africa and even traces of early missionary activities before the dominance of Islam in Northern Africa. So in simple terms, Africa has been subject to a lot of external forces and influences. Hence, it becomes hard today to imagine what Africa originally was. In the cause of all these events, Africa seems to have lost its culture, history and even languages. But what has all this got to do with architecture, you ask? Architecture has been defined as the art and science of making buildings, which extends to reflect the culture, lifestyle, aesthetics, local building materials, climate, geography, political and economic processing power of a people and place. So the question is was there any such thing as African architecture. To appreciate better the diverse influences on African architecture, let's go back in time to early Africa. Like other aspects of African culture, the architecture of Africa is and was exceptionally diverse. So let's begin with the African traditional architecture. Traditionally, African architecture used a wide range of materials including tash, Stick of wood, mud, mud brick, rammed earth, and stone. These material preferences varied by region. North Africa used stone and rammed earth, the Horn of Africa used stone and mortar, West Africa used modern adobe, Central Africa used tash and wood, and other more perishable materials. Southeast and Southern Africa used stone and tash or wood. Probably the most famous class of structure in all of Africa, which is the pyramids of Egypt, remain one of the world's greatest early architectural achievements. Nubian architecture is one of the most ancient in the world. The earliest style of Nubian architecture includes the spears, which were structures carved out of solid rock under the A group culture that lasted between 3700 and 3250 BCE. A-group culture eventually led to the C-group culture, which began building using light super materials such as animal skins and waterl-on-dub, with larger structures of mud-brick later becoming the norm. Coming down to Nigeria, there were broadly three styles of indigenous residential architecture across the three regions. First is the house architecture. House architecture used plastered adobe to create monolithic walls. Roofing was provided by shallow domes and vaults made from structural timber beams covered by laterite and earth. Homesteads were bound by perimeter walls with post circular and linear interior walls, with one clearly defined entrance. Next is Yoruba architecture. Yoruba architecture used cured earth walls to support roof timbers, over which leaf or wing grass roofing was applied. These walls were usually homogeneous, small structures. Though water lined up techniques can be found in certain locations, spaces were divided into individual units, which were then connected by proximity and walls into a compound with courtyards and private spaces. Multiple entrances and exits allowed access to ancillary facilities such as kitchens. And third is the Ibo architecture. Ibo architecture used similar construction techniques and materials as Yoruba architecture, but varies significantly in special arrangement. No unified compound will exist in the constructions. Instead, individual units were related to a central leaders' huts with significance attached to relative position and size. So, that is it for African traditional architecture. After that is African medieval architecture. So, the diverse external influences of the medieval era brought about changes to indigenous African architecture. The Islamic conquest of Northern Africa saw the development of Islamic architecture in the region. And some of the early major monuments include the Great Mosque of Kairan, founded in 670, and mostly rebuilt in its current form during the 9th century. Also is the Ibn Tulu Mosque in Cairo, built in the 9th century. In East Africa can be found some famous examples of Ethiopian rock hewn architecture. BT Medem Alem in Lalibela is the largest monolithic church in the world. In West Africa, the walls of Benin City are the world's largest man-made structure. According to Fred Peirce and New Scientist, they extend for some 16,000 km in all, in a mosaic of more than 500 interconnected settlement boundaries. They cover 6,500 square kilometers and were all dug by the Edo people. In all, they are four times longer than the Great Wall of China and consume a hundred times more material than the Great Pyramid of Cheops. They took an estimated 150 million hours of digging to construct and are perhaps the largest single archaeological phenomenon on the planet. The great Mosque of Jenny in Mali first built in the 13th century and reconstructed in 1906 to 1909 is the largest clay building in the world. In South Africa, Cape Dutch architecture is traditional Africana architecture and is one of the most distinctive types of settler architecture in the world. So that is it for the medieval African architecture. Next is African modern and postmodern architecture. The effect of modern architecture began to be felt across Africa in the 1920s and 1930s with the likes of Lekebussier designing several never-built schemes for Algiers and other African cities. Others include Stephen Ahrens in South Africa and Ensme in Nairobi and Mombasa. Coming down to post-independence, several new cities were built across Africa, while others were expanded. But the majority of these buildings were still designed by high-profile non-African architects. So having traced the African architecture from ancient to post-colonial eras, we can appreciate how Africa arguably lost touch with its cultural and indigenous ties. How then do we define or revive Afrocentric architecture? Places like China, Japan and Dubai have signature architectural styles that reflect their cultural lifestyle and materials and so much more. So according to Mad Kumaba, Afrocentric architecture is the translation of the culture, aesthetics, spirituality, local materials, and development philosophies of African people into their built environment. So first talking about the culture. This includes lifestyle, tradition, function, nature. Family, gender, education, entertainment, and the likes. And this could entail the introduction of such elements as courtiers and communal living spaces, bringing about perfect indoor outdoor integration. Second is aesthetics. So, talking about aesthetics, this includes pattern, motif, color, shape, finishing, mealwork, furniture, fencing, and the likes. A good example is the Koaz building in Lome Togo by Pierre Gudiabi. Atipa. third is spirituality so talking about spirituality this includes ancestors deities symbols worldview shrines origin stories mausoleums and the likes a good application is well crafted columns furniture and woodworks in buildings and fourth is local materials so talking about local materials this include earth stone wood tar shells and the like these materials are more affordable and sustainable as their best suited to the local climate. The works of such architects as Demas Moko, David Ajaye, Adeyama Shukumbi, Toshiro Shinobu and the likes exemplify the contemporary applications of local materials. The East Gate Center is a shopping center and office block in central Harare, Zimbabwe, designed by McPierce. It was designed to be ventilated and cooled by entirely natural means. Was probably the first building in the world to use natural cooling to this level of sophistication with an advancement of natural air conditioning this building was designed to respond precisely to higher climates climate and needs rather than import less suitable designs fifth is development philosophy so talking about development philosophy this includes community building master builders trade cures gender roles split rules, and the likes the construction of the popular jenny musk in mali is a classic example of a community building effort also the works of francis Kiry, marian camara and the likes puts this into contemporary application from all these elements it's obvious that afrocentric architecture is not all about reawakening ancient african architecture rather in the words of Dimas Moku, it is a new culture for development built upon a natural synthesis of design philosophies that are indigenous to africa interworking with elements of foreign practices, creating harmonious and innovative solutions. So having defined Afrocentric architecture, what is the way forward? How do we revive Afrocentric architecture? First, we need to look back at our school curricula and decolonize the curricula quite a bit. And secondly, we need to implement a lot of the research while going on in several academic and research institutions, across the continent. Such institutes as Nigerian Building and Road Research Institute (NIBRI) in Nigeria is a good example. Thirdly, we need to industrialize Africa so that we can refine and mass-produce building components from the local materials. And fourthly, we need more Afrocentric training institutes. Such an institute as a community planning and design initiative, CPGI Africa is a good example. Fifth, we need to research, document, and unveil more of African history. Such books as Afrocentric Architecture or a Design Primer by David Hughes and the Architecture of Demaswoku are great examples. Sixth, we need to create contextually relevant sustainability standards for Africa that match the likes of LED and H. And seventh, we need to ensure there are contextual parameters in our design and analysis tools for building information modeling, BIM, for Africa. I mean, we have witnessed the rise of Afrocentrism for centrism in music, arts, food, entertainment and the likes. So it's about time to awaken the same spirit in architecture and the built sector, generally. This will help to rebuild Africa in our cultural image. It will help to preserve Africa's heritage in the built environment, and it will help to promote design philosophies will define and sustain the profession it will also help to develop sustainable design languages that and here the global landscape so so far in this podcast i've traced the history of african architecture i've also defined afrocentrism and i've also outlined some steps we can take to revive afrocentrism in african beard sector as an underexposed market Africa's story podcast series aimed to bring the African market to the forefront. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to click the subscribe button from whatever platform you're tuning from. Also, visit www.blazemy.com, www.blazemy.com to access our other content. You can also check out my page www.onyema.me, www.onyema.me to access my other content to support a future episode of this podcast you can reach us at hello at blaze hello at thank you for listening to this episode of the blaze podcast i'll see you in some other episode